Hey everyone, welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. If you're new, we're glad that you're here and we pray that you'll connect with what God is doing here in our midst. Right now we're in a short series called Hard Questions for the Christian Faith. And today we're considering the question, how can there only be one way to heaven? Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker, my God is too big for any one religion. Or maybe you've seen the meme that says, no one is saved because they picked the right religion any more than they're condemned because they picked the wrong one. Maybe you're not into bumper stickers or memes, but you look around the world and you see the violence that's been committed in the name of religion. And you think, all religions boil down to being a good person. Why can't we just focus on that and not worry about the differences? Or maybe you've lived in a, a setting where religion was tightly controlled and everyone was made to think and act the same way. Haven't got, gotten free from that. Maybe the idea that Jesus is the only way, the only way to heaven, maybe that just sounds oppressive and intolerant. I think those are real concerns. And as we live and work with people from a variety of different religious and cultural backgrounds, I think we need a strategy for how to get along, and who doesn't want to see more peace in our world? But I fear that we think superficially about the answers. We assume solutions without considering their foundations or their implications. Let's try to fix that. <laughs> fix it with a consideration of an event in the life of the early church that dealt with these issues. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 4, verses 5 to 12. And if you don't have one, please pause the video, grab one so you can follow along. I'll start reading at Acts chapter 4, verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the word of God. Now, this passage gives us three reasons for the exclusive claims of the Bible. Three reasons why Jesus is the only way to heaven. And they help us understand some of the questions that we have about religious diversity and our longing for peace and mutual acceptance. The first reason for the exclusive claims of the Bible is that the belief that Jesus is the only way isn't just a cultural bias. The idea that Jesus is the only way to heaven isn't like the belief that the Toronto Maple Leafs are the only hockey team. <laughs> People don't just believe in it because of their preference or their upbringing. The belief that Jesus is the only way isn't just a cultural bias. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. I was speaking with a friend recently and he said, 
All religions think they have the right way. But in reality, people just gravitate to the religion that their culture promotes. If you want to be religious in Pakistan, you'll probably be Muslim. If you want to be religious in South America, you'll probably be Catholic. If you want to be religious in Israel, you'll probably be Jewish. In his mind, the different shades of religion are just different cultural expressions of the same basic desires to think about God and be good. And I think a lot of people feel that way. But that idea doesn't account for the birth of the church or the experience of ten, tens of millions of people around the world today. Let me explain. Prior to the passage that I just read for you, Peter and John had gone into the temple to pray. As they were passing the gate at the entrance, there was a paralyzed man who called out to them asking for money. Instead of a handout, they gave him a healing. Miraculously, he rose to his feet and was jumping up and down, praising God. Now, seeing someone that excited in a religious setting is going to attract attention. So people started to look. But when they did, they recognized him. They could see that he was the one who had sat begging there for years, and they were stunned. Before long, a huge crowd had gathered, and Peter has to explain how this thing happened. He declares to them the good news about Jesus, and there's an incredible response. In chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Now, I'm not sure how we, how we fully recognize how improbable that would have been. Put yourself in their shoes. You're Jewish. And you've been hearing about this person named Jesus for some time already. You know that he was condemned as a blasphemer by your own high priest and all of the other religious leaders you've ever looked up to. Not only that, but he was crucified as a criminal. What would it take to convince you to put your life, re reputation, and your religious standing on the line to trust in Jesus as your God? If you can imagine that, it may have been even more difficult for the Greeks and the Romans. It was tough for them to even get their head around the idea of one all-powerful God. But giving your allegiance to Jesus, to them it sounded like treason to a faithful citizen who worshipped Caesar and swore loyalty to Rome. And yet, Christianity spread throughout, all across the Roman Empire, and it did so through unlikely conversions. And it continues to do so today. Today, the countries where Christianity is growing the fastest include China, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Iran. And you have to ask why. In the passage that we're looking at, there were at least two factors. First, they witnessed the incredible power of God. And then two, they heard the good news about Jesus. Most people who say all religions are basically the same have typically never experienced either of these. Rebecca McLaughlin asks the question, if I say Christianity is true and Hinduism, Islam, and Buddhism are not, is that like saying, stop smoking, it could kill you? Or is it more like saying, my grandmother's cooking is better than yours? <laughs> if you haven't experienced what Jesus can do in your life, and if you haven't come to terms with the gospel, then religion may just feel like grandmother's cooking.
But if you were to speak to a convert to Christianity in Oman or Nepal, they would set you straight. They put their trust in Jesus despite all of the cultural obstacles because they found in him life, hope, forgiveness, and the reality of a relationship with God. On the other hand, my friend was partially right. Many people believe what they believe because of cultural bias. There are lots of people who follow Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, and Christian traditions because it's culturally convenient for them to do so. But interestingly, the same is true for my friend. It's culturally convenient for him as an average Canadian to be irreligious. If he would have grown up in Pakistan, he probably wouldn't say, I'm not into organized religion. In that sense, Christianity has always been resisted by those who cling to their cultural biases. And that's exactly what happened in today's passage. There were hundreds who, against all odds, put their faith in Jesus in response to the good news that they'd heard preached to them. But look what happens in verses 5 and 6. It says, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. Here you've got a group of religious power brokers coming together to figure out how to shut Christianity down. They see that there's been a genuine miracle, but they've got way too much to lose to put their trust in Jesus. So they won't listen to the message. They're not interested in the evidence. They've already made up their minds. And you can't help but ask yourself whether you don't do the same thing. Have your traditions blinded you to what Jesus has really done? Has your bias kept you from hearing what Jesus invites you to? Believing that Jesus is the only way isn't the same as saying, my grandmother's cooking is the only food you should ever eat. It's God breaking into this world and inviting you and I into a relationship with himself. So the belief that Jesus is the only way isn't just a cultural bias. In fact, a belief that Jesus is the only way to heaven is the foundation of Christianity. And what I mean by that is that you can't take Christ out of Christianity and still be left with something meaningful. It's not that we just have some nice ethical morals and standards, and there's a little bit about Jesus that could easily be replaced by Buddha or Joseph Smith. The belief that Jesus is the only way is the foundation of Christianity. Now, when I mention the miraculous healing that started the commotion that our passage today is focused on, it's interesting how the people responded. The crowds were filled with wonder and amazement, and they ran to Peter and John to try to understand how they had done this. And the religious authorities were even more specific. In verse 7, it says that they asked them, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? They're demanding to know whose authority the healing was performed by. They want to know where the power to heal came from. It's interesting because irreligious people today take a pragmatic view that says, religion's value can be boiled down to the good it accomplishes. They might have heard or even seen the healing and said, well, that's nice. I'm sure I'm glad that, that he's feeling better now. But that's a completely inadequate response. If there is 
actually power to heal someone like that, we ought to ask where the power comes from. And if it matters, then the specifics matter. So the authorities were right to ask for the name. And in verse 10, Paul, uh, Peter responds by saying, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, by him this man is standing before you well. He not only tells them that it's Jesus, the one claiming to be the Messiah or the Christ, but in case they might confuse him with some other Jesus who made similar claims, he adds his hometown of Nazareth. That's particular. Peter knew what the religious authorities knew, that if something matters, then the details or the specifics matter. Today, people will often dismiss the particulars of religion and say things like, everybody worships the same God, they just use different names. Now, if I make a meal that I call quiche and you have the same meal and call it egg pie, the name makes little difference because the ingredients, the recipe, and the final product are the same thing. But if Christianity is like quiche, then Jesus is the egg. <laughs> Remove him from it and it's not a quiche anymore. He is the foundation and without him, everything falls apart. The confession that Jesus is the only way to heaven is foundational to the Christian faith. Now in verse 11, Peter refers to Jesus as the cornerstone. This was a massive rock used to line up everything else in the, in the building. He's saying Jesus is the linchpin. He's the centerpiece. He's the infinity stone, if you like. Remove him and you don't have anything left. That's why he can say in verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name by which we can be saved. There is forgiveness in no one else. And when Peter said this, it wasn't as if he wasn't aware of other religions. The Roman Empire was filled with religious groups and sects. And he was standing before the very people who had themselves rejected Jesus. He said what he did, despite the likelihood of disagreement, because he loved them too much to let them die in their sins. Now, over the last year, everyone's been desperate for relief from COVID-19. And there have been reports of hundreds of cures and preventions spread through social media and other means. One of those potential cures that I saw claimed that drinking cow urine and spreading cow dung on your body would cure you of COVID-19. Uh, south of the border, a well-known televangelist asked viewers to touch their television screens as a means of receiving a vaccination by proxy. Now, you may have heard of those kinds of things, but nobody says that cow urine, televangelist prayers, and Moderna vaccines are all basically the same thing. And we also don't call it intolerant to suggest that they're not. And we shouldn't do that with religion either. The religions of the world aren't essentially the same and superficially different. They're essentially different and only superficially similar. And the belief that Jesus is the only way, that's foundational to Christianity. And that's because belief that Jesus is the only way rests on the evidence of history. The Bible's claim is that God has given evidence to persuade people that he has made salvation possible 
through faith in Jesus. So the belief that Jesus is the only way rests on historical evidence. Now, one of the examples of that in our passage today is a healing of the paralyzed man. Many people dismiss the miracles of the Bible as being unscientific. That doesn't mean that they're not real. A miracle, by definition, can't be explained by the natural laws of science. It's God intervening in a world in an unusual way to demonstrate his power and get our attention. There are lots of false claims of miracles today, and so we're right to be skeptical when we look here at this one. But notice what we can understand about this particular miracle. This miracle was, first of all, verifiable. A man who had been paralyzed and was well known to many people was seen to be able to walk for the first time. That's different than an evangelist claiming to have healed someone with some unknown back pain or stiffness in the elbow. We're specifically told that many in the crowd recognized the man as having formerly been paralyzed and now he was actually jumping around in joy. So a neutral and probably somewhat cynical crowd is convinced that there's a genuine healing. What's more remarkable is that the religious leaders who had every reason to deny and reject this miracle, they accepted it as real. We've seen this already in their interrogation of Peter and John, but when they deliberate afterward about what to do, they say in verse 16, that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Now, if people who were firmly opposed to Christianity affirmed the validity of the miracles that were performed, on what basis can we reject them? Notice also what they call the miraculous healing. They call it a sign, right? They knew that if the laws of science and nature have been suspended to do something that can't otherwise be done, then it must be God intervening to point something out. It's God giving evidence to persuade people of the truth. So when Christians say that Jesus is the only way to heaven, they're not saying he's better, like people say iPhone is better than Android. They're saying that God has given evidence to persuade us of the truth. And the evidence needs to be evaluated, and we need to make a decision. If we accept it as credible, we need to accept what it's pointing to, because it's a sign. But there's even greater evidence that God has given us, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His resurrection from the dead. When asked where the power or authority to heal the paralyzed man came from, Peter says in verse 10, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. The resurrection was this incredibly inconvenient reality that the opponents of Christianity had to deal with. Now, today, hundreds, two thousands, two thousand years separated from the event, it's easy for people to say, oh, that's ridiculous, it couldn't have happened. But in the days and weeks and months following it, it wasn't so easily refuted. That's because there were so many eyewitnesses. If you tried to deny it, you'd be challenged by those who had actually seen Jesus' death and his resurrection. 
God has suspended his own laws of science to do something so incredible that it couldn't be ignored or forgotten. He's given you historical evidence to persuade you of the truth of Jesus' claims. And Jesus, who himself is the one who said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, there are plenty of other religions that respect Jesus. There are lots of people who appreciate his teachings. But the question that needs to be answered is whether you trust him as the way and the truth and the life. That's the question that all of scripture points to. That's the question that all of his miracles point to. And that's the conclusion that people in countries like Oman and Mongolia and Cambodia and even here in Richmond Hill are coming to today. So have you joined them? Have you responded to God's invitation in Jesus Christ? If you haven't, I wanna urge you to do that. Don't let your cultural bias get in the way of you turning to Jesus. Don't let social pressure keep you from an unlikely conversion. By faith, take your first step on the path and on the way that is Jesus Christ. And if you have started along the way, there are a couple of implications that I want you to reflect on based on this passage. The first is this, don't treat the gospel like your grandmother's cooking. It's not just something you've acquired a taste for. It's truth, it's life. It's the only hope we have in this world. Jesus isn't just one way to heaven, he's the only way to heaven. And so sharing that message that isn't intolerant. It isn't insensitive. It's the most loving thing you could do. But here's the other thing. The way that you talk about Jesus as the only way to heaven, that may be intolerant. You and I can be part of the problem when our attitude's not right and when we speak to people in a way that's proud, defensive, angry, or dismissive. If we can agree that we disagree with other people, then we can talk about our disagreements agreeably. The same Peter who told the religious establishment that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, also urged Christians in 1 Peter 3.15 to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And then he added, yet do it with gentleness and respect. If Christians were more known for their gentleness and respect, there may just be fewer accusations of intolerance. We follow the Savior who called us to love our enemies and pray for those who mistreat us. But that's not always what people see reflected in our lives. So may he make us more like him, and may we make that our goal as we focus our eyes on him and seek to follow the way the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we often think of this question of how could there only be one way? But the real question is, how is it that you have provided such a way? We can only stand back and marvel, even as people were amazed at the healing 
of this man who had been paralyzed. We stand back in amazement that in Jesus Christ, through simple faith, we can be forgiven. We can receive salvation, eternal life, a gift that we don't deserve. Heavenly Father, help us to treat this gift as precious. And if there is anyone listening now who has not received that gift, who has not experienced the power of God that is available in Jesus Christ, that has not come to know him as the way and the truth and the life. Father, draw that person to yourself and give them the courage to take a step on that path together with you. Father, help us to model the the love and the acceptance and the graciousness that you have shown towards us as we seek to make Jesus known and as we seek to represent him before a watching world. Give us your help, Father, even as you go before us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I hope this message has helped you understand why there could only be one way. But maybe it's still got you confused as well. If you have questions or want to know how you can take the next step with Jesus, leave a comment or send me an email. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, share the link and spread the word. And as always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.